Our scripture text this morning is from Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. One thing most of us enjoy, or I think it's safe to assume, we love hearing a good story. We used to have a neighbor just passed away last week, actually, that could tell a tale. Like nobody could tell a tale. I mean, some people just have the capacity to tell stories, and they draw you in, and they, they have the right delay, the right timing. They, they don't butcher the, the funny line. They just tell a good tale. They tell a good story. Well, the one thing I love about the Gospels is the stories of Jesus. I mean, they're just, he tells them, they're intriguing stories. They have twists and turns. They have kind of unexpected events to them. They're really remarkable. I think we find one of these stories uh, in Zacchaeus. Now, you know, as we've been going through Advent, we've been looking at why Jesus has come. And this is explaining why. You know, we've, we've seen he's come to destroy the works of the devil. We've seen that he has come to preach the gospel, that in fact uh, captives would be freed. We saw last week that he's come to put to death, um, put death to death. And here we see that he's come as like the chief shepherd of Israel, and he's come to seek and to save the lost. That's the point of it. He's come to tell those that we would consider unsavable, unredeemable of this great salvation. Now, I, I, you know, we, we hear the story of Zacchaeus, and of course we think the song, We Little Man Was He. Um, it's much more than a cute story. And the, the, God, the story of Zacchaeus occupies a place in Luke's gospel. It's the last personal encounter Jesus will have before he finishes out his ministry. It's really the climax of Luke's gospel. It's an incredible story. This, this great sinner, I mean, of, of epic proportions, finds a great salvation. That, that's the idea behind it. So, I mean, if you're, if you're honest with yourself, and if you look back at your life, and you've been overwhelmed with the guilt of your sin and the shame, this is a story of incredible hope. I, I mean, there, there is no one that can marshal up <clears throat> some of the deeds that Zacchaeus could. I, I mean, it's a story that kind of sets the bar for God really does love the unlovable. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at Jesus really closely. But first, that he comes to seek the sinner. Four aspects of Christ. He seeks a sinner. That's what he does. He seeks sinners, not saints. 
And then we're going to see that he calls sinners to salvation by grace. A, a unique call that Jesus puts upon people's life. That's the second. And then third, Jesus transforms sinners. He changes them. It, salvation includes this revolution of life. And, and, then, and then last, we're going to see that, that he actually celebrates with them. Uh, Jesus celebrates with sinners. So, so he, he seeks sinners. He calls them by grace. He, he changes them. And then he celebrates with them. Uh, so look with me at verses 1 to 4. Because we see that he seeks this man named Zacchaeus. It says, he entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man. No, that wasn't what it says. It says, he was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not. Because he was small in stature, so he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Now, there's a lot going on right here. Jesus is on his way to his death. He's going to Jerusalem. He stops at Jericho, a city very close, in fact, right next to Jerusalem. Um, Jericho was actually a very prosperous town. They had a, a great business in terms of palms and balsam, and, and it was a, a big center of taxation um, for Palestine. It was an important city, of course, because it was right next to Jerusalem. So this is where we meet Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, uh, in Hebrew, his name means righteous or pure or, or holy and innocent. He was none of those things, right? He was a tax collector. and, and a, a ta He wasn't just a tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. So he not only profited from his own collection of taxes, uh, but those under him. It was kind of like a pre-Amway, if you will. Sorry, I had to say that. It wasn't. But there was this pyramid, and he was profiting from those who worked for him. This is what made him incredibly rich. He was incredibly rich. I mean, I don't know how to equate it. Millions and millions of dollars. Just very rich man. He was also incredibly hated by the people. He was hated by them because he was first a servant of Rome. He sells himself to Rome to collect taxes for them. Rome was a foreign occupier. I mean, they were oppressing Israel, and he's working for them. And the profit he's making is all coming off his own countrymen's back. So he's making money. So he has this great wealth, and it was all their money. So you can just, I don't even know how to draw an analogy for you. It's hard to make a comparison. Maybe a French collaborator with the Germans during World War II, maybe aligning themselves with a German army uh, as opposed to sticking with the French. In the Mishnah, the Mishnah is a, a Jewish book. It's the oral tradition of the Old Testament. In, in the Mishnah, they compared a tax collector to an animal. And they said, just as you can lie to an animal, because an animal, there's no, moral, uh, there's no moral wrong in lying to an animal, so you can lie to a tax collector. They gave justice to lie to a tax collector because they were just like an animal. See, you can imagine how he's hated. Super rich, super hated. This is why he couldn't see Jesus. They were preventing him. I mean, this, this little guy who's hated, they're body slamming him, they're body checking him, they're keeping him away. That's what moves him to run to the sycamore tree. Now, sycamore trees in Palestine or in the Middle East are different than ours. Ours get up to 100 feet. Now, theirs are smaller, more like a mulberry tree, like 40 feet. But they had these low branches, so they're easy to climb. So he goes ahead, and he climbs up the sycamore tree. Now, 
you need to know that he really wanted to see Jesus. Now, people always ask, well, why? What was his motivation? We're not told. But we can make some, I think, safe assumptions. It could have been to see, you know, kind of just curious what this wonder worker was like. I wanted to get my eyes on him. It seems more than that, though, because for a man of his money, dressed to the nines to run. It was very undignified for a man to run in this culture. Uh, but but the, it would be equivalent to running in a suit or a dress with heels. You don't run in those things. He did run. He really wanted to see him. But he also climbed a tree. Now, kids climb trees all the time. Adults don't climb trees. And men don't climb trees. He climbed a tree. He really wanted to see him. Now, Maybe it was because he had heard earlier. Jesus dined with Matthew, called him to be a disciple, ate with many tax collectors in chapter 5. Or or maybe it was because he was just loaded down with guilt. Maybe he felt so guilty. A a life of extortion, a life of profiting off your countrymen. Or maybe it was just fatigue. The money wasn't giving him the joy that he thought it would. Maybe he just was getting to that age where you realize things really don't give you the joy that you think they should or you hope that they would. Maybe it was those things. But what we know is Jesus stopped there and looked up. Now, now he's been traveling all the way to Jerusalem, but here is where he stops and looks up. Why does he he take a shine to Zacchaeus? I, I think because Zacchaeus is like the quintessential sinner. I think he's the sinner extraordinaire. I think he's a poster child for the unredeemable. I think he's somebody that if you had to put your last dollar on and say, that guy will never be saved, he'll never be reconciled to God, I think that's why he did it. Jesus seeks sinners. It's what it's here for. It's the epitome of the gospel. When you go through Luke, he's always going to the marginalized, the broken, the downcast. As John prayed, the ones we walk away from, They're not like us. They're not cleaned up. They're not morally acceptable. Just kind of pull back, move around them, kind of avoid them. I think that's why he went right to them. Now, you know, a couple things to draw from this is, number one, people do still seek Jesus. You, You know, we may become more and more secularized in our culture. People are still searching. They're searching for meaning and value in life. They may go down the path of seeking economic success. They may go down the path of you know, some recognition in, in, in kind of in, a, in a, a work context. It may be relational happening. We want meaning. We want value in life. And, and yet, as, as the years pass by, you just find it's harder and harder to get. These things don't produce what they promise. They never live up to their promises. Remember now, we are, every single person in this room, wherever you stand with Jesus Christ, you are created in the image of God. And so being created in the image of God, you cannot and you will never find full contempt in the created order. It cannot produce what you need. It won't do it. It will always leave you discontent. No matter how much money you make, how many relationships you have, the success you have, the academic achievement you achieve, it it will not satisfy. A couple years back, I reminded you of what Jim Carrey, the famous actor, said. He says, I think everybody should get rich and famous, and do everything they ever dreamed of doing so that they can see it's not the answer. This is a guy that's attained financial success, success in terms of popular entertainment, and he says, it's not the answer. 
It's not th there's this discontentment that we have. It, it, it's like it's like we are trying to live in homes without skylights or windows. Uh, when you live in a closed world where all your joy and all your meaning and value come from the things of this world, very discontentment. That, that's the epitome of discontentment. You know, Charles Taylor wrote a book called The Secular Age. I had to read a book about the book because the book's so dense. Uh, but, but, but the book itself, it, he talks about um, this, we live in a haunted age. In the past, hundreds of years ago, we lived in an enchanted age. You know, we all understood, he calls the kind of the poorest self. We, we, we live within the world of spiritual realities, but now the buffered self, we, we don't see those things as much. We live kind of secularized lives. He says, but, but it's still a haunted age. Uh, but he says, because we have this sneaking suspicion that we're missing something. We know that there's something more. There's this inkling. There's got to be something more than what we experience in this life. Of course, Augustine said this 1,600 years ago. He said, our soul finds no rest until it finds rest in thee. No amount of booze or sex or relationships or money are going to satisfy us. You've been made by God. You've been made for God. And to live without God will never lead you to happiness. So we're still searching. The good news is that God is still searching for us. He's still searching. He's still calling. He's still moving to people with the gospel, and I'm thankful for that. And if you are now here and you're searching, know that God is searching. If you're longing for this, he's already looking for you. And that's what we see next is Jesus seeks sinners, and then he calls them by grace. Uh, look with me at 5 to 7. 5 to 7, he says, When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now, you see another twist here in the story, that instead, you know, Zacchaeus is thinking, I'm doing all this work to find this Jesus. Jesus has been hunting him the whole time. I say that because Jesus stops right at that spot. Now, he's high. He's in a leafy tree. I don't know if he saw him or not. But the fact that it says he stopped and looked up. And he didn't say, he didn't say, come on, what are you doing up in the tree, man? You know what I mean? What's going on? No, he says, hurry and come down. He not only stops and looks up, but he calls him, and he calls him by name. Jesus wasn't from Jericho. Jesus shouldn't have known him, wouldn't have known him. But he calls him by name, and he says, hurry and come down. There's an urgency to wanting to be with Zacchaeus right now. In fact, Luke records the gospel here, and when it says, I must stay at your house, it's a little Greek word, just three letters, and it means by necessity. I need to do it, and I need to do it right now. It's as if Jesus had this divine appointment. Zacchaeus didn't know it, but Jesus knew it. It's like, it's like God is bringing redemption to you today and jesus does say that today today salvation has come see i think what what luke is informing us here is that jesus calls zacchaeus by name to show god's divine initiative in salvation god moves first in salvation god has to do the saving that we don't kind of add to the mix he saves us first by moving. And the reason I say that is because in chapter 18, there was another rich man. 
this ruler. But he's not named. And he's not saved. He comes up to Jesus, says, what must I do? And Jesus tells him, and he walks away sad. And Jesus says that it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle, that would be a difficult thing, than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And yet Jesus shows how rich men enter the kingdom. It's by God's grace alone. God moves first in us. This is why J.C. Ryle in this passage says, unasked, he stops and speaks to Zacchaeus. Unasked, Jesus invites himself to his house. Unasked, he sends into the heart of this tax collector the renewing grace of the Spirit and puts him that very day among the children of Abraham. So we, we have to see this, this, that by grace we are saved. Now, now listen, when we look at salvation, salvation is by God's gracious initiative. I think this is what's clear here. Now, God draws us, no doubt. We, 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 we respond to the call of God, and God calls us by his Spirit in a variety of ways. I mean, it may be a hunger for transcendence. It may be a fear over death. It may be a fatigue with life. So, so God does draw us, and no one comes to the Father, except those whom, no one comes to me except those whom the Father draws. But what I want you to see is that the initiative lies with God. Otherwise, how could grace be grace? So if you kind of take the position, well, God does his part, I do my part, well, that's kind of a transaction. There's no grace in that. You're adding yours, he's adding his, and you come up with salvation. But, but that's not the picture here. The picture here is that rich young ruler did not get saved. He was unnamed, and yet Zacchaeus was named. It, it's the electing mercy of God that saves. This is why John Calvin wrote about this passage. Do you see the astonishing kindness of God? Just the astonishing. He saved Zacchaeus for his glory and by his grace alone. This should humble us. If you're among those that would call themselves children of God, you are here and understanding that because of his mercy in your life alone. Did you respond to him? Did you choose to follow him? Sure you did, but it was he was hunting you. I, I mean, the hunter was being hunted. The one seeking was being sought. Uh, the, lost, the, the lost don't find their way. They're found. We've been found. Let this humble us in this Christmas season. I mean, let, let's rejoice over it. I mean, it really is just unbelievable. I was thinking last night, why? Why would you choose me? But why, why would you be gracious to me to open my eyes to these things? That so many others have heard the gospel in so much more clear ways, and their eyes haven't been opened. The rich young ruler, the eyes did not get opened. Zacchaeus, the eyes were opened. God, to him be the glory. That's why he's worthy. But also know that this salvation by grace does confound people. Many of you may actually be wondering, is he saying that God has to do the first work? Yes. I am, and it confounds us. You see them grumble. You see them grumble because Jesus is going to the house of a, they say, a sinner. A sinner was a, a coined term, a collective term. Like, you get all your prostitutes and get all your heretics and get all your, your child trafficking, sex addicts. You get them all together and you say, these are the sinners, and so Jesus goes off and has fellowship and, and begins to speak to God's grace to them. And they're grumbling. They're saying, what is he doing? 
Remember now, a lot of those in the crowd were probably extorted by Zacchaeus. Maybe their father's businesses were ruined. Maybe they were living below the poverty line because of his extortion. And they're saying, hold the phone. Don't go saving Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus needs to make his amends. He needs to fix what he did wrong. He needs to pay a pound of flesh. There is no way grace can be given to that guy. He doesn't deserve it. He hasn't shown any sort of remorse. We don't want to see it happen. And we're grumbling against it. This is the problem with being a religionist being very religious, is we think that you got to do some amends first and then God's going to have an audience with you. you got to kind of put up a little, clean up. You know how you feel. You feel guilty with sin. You want to do a couple quiet times before you come back to him. We do the same thing. we got to get, but that's not the way grace works. Grace works by God moving first in a person's life and then they wake up and change. This is why we can hang out with sinners. And we can make fellowship with them, and we can, we can enjoy them and, pre- and share the gospel, because God has to move first. We've got to know that, that God moves first, and then they change. You know, who, who in your life, if they came to faith, would make you grumble? Who in your life, if they came to faith, would make you grumble? Someone that has hurt you and not repented? Someone that's spoken evil about you? Someone that's divorced you? Uh, someone that's cheated on you, if they did this, and, and would you grumble if they found God's favor? This is the struggle we have with grace. We just think we're better positioned to know who should get it and who shouldn't get it and what they need to do before they get it. But that's not the way God works. And for me personally, I'm thankful. Notice that it's the grace of God in calling Zacchaeus, which then brings the change. And that's what we see in verse 8. In verse 8, we see him change. And Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, we're not told all the P's and Q's about the conversation. We're not privy to it. The story's told in a swift fashion. You know, he's in the tree, he comes down, he's joyfully excited about it, and then boom, we see this transformation. Jesus doesn't just seek sinners, and he doesn't just call sinners by grace, but he transforms them, and that's what we see right here. Now, we don't know the story. We can assume that Jesus talked to him about the gospel. Right two weeks ago, I said Jesus came to preach and to preach the good news, and we also have the example in Luke 5. So in Luke 5, Jesus calls Levi, or Matthew, and he, he has a feast with Matthew and a ton of tax collectors. And the Pharisees, no doubt, were grumbling over Jesus then. Crowds change, grumbling the same, grumbling that he's at the house of a sinner. And so he comes out and he says, Hi, in Matthew 5, 32, he says, I haven't come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners to repentance. If he says that, he must have been calling them to repentance. So Jesus moves in their life, and he calls Zacchaeus to repentance. And it seems it's a safe assumption to assume that, because look at what happens. He stands up, honoring Jesus, and says, Lord. Now, Lord is predominantly used in the New Testament as Lord God, not Sir or Master, but, but Lord God. It was used of Caesar who had divine properties. So he's saying, look, Lord, 
And then he begins to speak. You see him change. I mean, this, this massive transformation of a person. Right? Let, let's just look at some of the changes that you see. First, there's a joy, right? He's rejoicing. You, you can't you hear him. He stands up. Look, Lord. You know, he's so excited. I'm giving away half my estate. Look, Lord. You know, there's this, this is almost like a born-again experience. He's excited about Christ. He's excited about the forgiveness that Christ preached. He's excited about being reconciled to God. Listen, if you took all the things that you've done that were ungodly, and let's say each one was a brick, and you just started loading them up on your shoulders, and then you took everything that you should have done, but you didn't do because you were lazy or because you didn't feel like doing it, and they were bricks, and they get added to your shoulders. Every thought, every thought now, every impulse, every desire, every word, every deed, and you made them all bricks on your shoulder. How tall would that fortress be? And then if he comes and pushes it all off, takes it all away, can you imagine the relief, the freedom? Stand up, I've been, I've been forgiven. I really have been forgiven. I've been reconciled to God. Uh, he's my father. He's not going to look at me with this kind of sideways, sideways glance when I see him on that final day. He's my father now. I mean, can you imagine the joy he has? A guy that has a train wreck of a life like him? I mean, the joy. That's why we sing. That's why we're happy at Christmas. Well, that's why we're happy. We're to be happy people. That means we smile periodically when I'm preaching to you. We're happy. I know many of you get masks on, but I can see right through it. We're happy. He's happy. So there's a degree of, has their happiness come to you uh, when you've come to understand or reflect on the nature of the gospel? Not just 22 years ago when you were saved, uh, but even that ongoing work. Are, are you happy? I, I mean, that's what Christmas is all about. It's not about the gifts. It's about Christ himself who has come in the flesh to save people like Zacchaeus and me and you. So there's a joy you see. But secondly, you see a generosity, don't you? He says, half my goods I give to the poor. Now, if you read through the Old Testament, I mean, the command about giving adds up to maybe 20, 22%. Those of you who are resting on 10%, you're there, you're not there. That's not, that's not the point anyways. But if you add up all the giving and the tithing and the special offerings and don't cut the corner of your properties, it's about 22-23%. But he goes all the way to half. He says half of it. What we're seeing here is a revolution of a mind in the way he views money. And money was his God. Jesus said, can't serve God in money. Well, he had been serving money. Now he's serving God. So you see this major transformation of his mind. He's not trying to buy his salvation, and this doesn't mean everybody here has to give half their money away. That's not the point. The point is his mind is radically altered. He gives away half of it. He recognizes now he has a Father in heaven who's going to care for him in every way. So I can be absolutely generous, and generous he was. He gave it away. You, know, you, you kind of see this, this massive shift in a human being because he's come to know that God has sent a son to die for his sins. It reminds me of Ebenezer Scrooge. I, everything doesn't remind me of Ebenezer Scrooge, just for those of you who have been here for a while. It, it doesn't work that way. But think about the Christmas carol. He, he, when, after the, the three ghosts of you know, Christmas past, present, and future, 
and he realizes he wakes up and he gets another chance, he's happy. That's the, you know, the miserly, old, crusty man grumbling over his bowl of porridge the night before and angry and alone, no friends, everybody's scared of him. Now he's happy. Throws open his window. Says, is the goose still hanging there? Yeah, it is. Okay, go send it over to Cratchit's house. And all of a sudden he begins to give his money away. The man that everybody looked at as an angry old man, miserly, now began to move among the people of that town with great generosity. This is what happens to us. We're generous people, not just with our money, with our time, uh, with our willingness to be put out, with our willingness to forbear the sins of other people. There's a generosity at a thousand levels. Don't think just cash. Think generous with patience with people, kindness, Broadening our circle of friends to include those that maybe not like us. Have you found a generosity in your life? Have you increased in generosity? I mean, have you been freer with the things that you have, the time and the treasure and the talents? That's a mark of change. But not just that, there's justice. Look at the justice. He says, if I've defrauded anyone, I'll give them fourfold. Now, the law in Leviticus said, if you defraud somebody, you have to return to them that you took, and then 20%. He gives 400%. And it comes from the other half of the estate because the first half is gone. He's given half of it away. He's got half left, and now he's going to pay 400% back. No compulsion here. We don't see Jesus saying, hey, this is what you've got to do to be saved. It's, it's a response to the grace of the gospel. There's a justice here. No longer am I using my position for power, for my own good ends, but now I'm seeking the good in the relationships around me. He wants justice and care for those who are weaker and who have been... You know, what he's doing is, instead of being taken to court over fraud, he's taking himself to court. He's saying, where in my relationships am I not caring for the weak, the disenfranchised, the broken? Where am I not sharing my goods with those who have less than I do? Where am I not doing this? Let me go do it. I mean, it's incredible. He changed radically. This is the story of Christmas. This is why he came in the flesh to change us. So when you look at your life, to what degree, where do you see the changes that have been wrought in your souls through the gospel? It's a really important question because a lot of people will profess to be born again. And by the way, born again, you know, born again is often used as kind of a, a, a you know, expression of Southern Christianity. You know, actually, the expression in the South over being born again used to be, I've been seized with a great affection. That's how they would describe their conversion. I've been seized with a great affection. I, I now have affections for Christ. You see, it's not just this cognitive belief in the faith, but there is an affective. There is a heart rendering of devotion to the one who saved me, just as if I plucked you from a, a blazing fire and saved you. You wouldn't have to say, oh, be happy to Tom. You, you would just, it would be an impulse, like hitting your knee, you know, the doctor striking your knee to see the reflex. It would just come out. See, the, the question, the reason I ask is what has changed in you is because many of us, I think many people who will affirm to be born again, 
uh, the evidence of that will be, well, I prayed when I was younger, or I believe in this set of beliefs. Now, they may, that may be part of faith, but it's not the sum of it. There ought to be change. So when you look at your life, just look at your life, look at your marriage, look at the relationships you have. Single, you have this broad spectrum of friendships. Look at your friendships. To what degree uh, would they see you as seized with a new affection? To what degree are you generous in terms of offering forgiveness or seeking forgiveness or helping financially? Uh, to, to what degree are you keeping a record of wrongs against people as opposed to forgiving them? I mean, look at your life for these signs of spiritual life. A.W. Tozier wrote these words about conversion. He said, the workings of God in the hearts of Redeem men and women always overflow into observable conduct. He says certain moral changes will take place immediately in the life of the new convert. A, a moral revolution outside will accompany the spiritual revolution that has occurred inside. As the evangelists tell us, even our own cat will know when the head of the house is converted. And the grocer will know it too. The cat probably getting more food now from the owner of the house. It's seen. It's known. What is seen and known about your conversion? Do you see it? Just start with your own soul. So, so see, Jesus changes. He transforms us. He seeks the sinner and he, he calls the sinner by grace and then he changes them. He transforms us. And, and that's what leads ultimately to the celebration. Jesus celebrates with the saints, or sorry, with the sinners. Look with me at 9 and 10. In 9 and 10 he says, And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. See, you, you see the celebratory mood, right? Today salvation has come to the house. You can see Jesus, he stands up after after, you know, Zacchaeus kind of displays that inward work of God's spirit by the outward change of his life. And then Jesus is confirming, giving authenticity. See, today salvation has come to this house. But notice what he says, today. He says today. It's not tomorrow. Salvation is a present reality. I'm saved. You're saved today. You're forgiven today. You're Part of God's kingdom today, you're walking in your eternal life today. It, salvation isn't a future potential, it's a present reality. And the reason Jesus can say today salvation, think about this on the cross, Jesus would later say, today you'll be with me in paradise. It, it's a present reality, today. And of course the reason Jesus can be so bold is because he will go to his own death to save Zacchaeus. Oh, he knows Zacchaeus will be saved. Because he knows he's going to die for him. Today salvation has come. A and he shows the salvation by his becoming a child, a child of Abraham. That's really important because if you were a Jew in the room at the time, you'd say, what? What's going on? He was already a Jew. No, no, no. He may have been a Jew. He wasn't a son of Abraham. No, he was a son of Abraham. He has the same bloodlines. He came from Abraham's bloodlines. That's not how we are made a child of Abraham. That's not how we're made a child of God, that we have some relationship to people who are really spiritual. No, it's by faith. You learned that with me back in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. He says, know then that it's those of faith who are sons of Abraham. So for us today, we are made sons of Abraham by faith in the promises of Abraham. 
of the promises of God to Abraham. And God promised Abraham that he would send a Messiah. This Messiah would bring about new heavens, new earth, blessing to the nations, redemption to God. Is that what your faith is in? Because today, salvation has come to this house. He's now a child of Abraham because he believes now. And notice what Jesus finishes with. He says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus stands up and he says, I'm the great shepherd of Israel. So in Ezekiel 34, the shepherds of Israel were criticized by God himself because they didn't seek and save the lost. Jesus says, I am that great shepherd. I am the shepherd. And if you go on and read Ezekiel 34, he's, God says, I'll send my own shepherd. He says it. God says, I'll send my own shepherd. And Jesus is now saying, I'm the shepherd. I'm the one that's come from God to seek and to save the lost. This is what leads to celebration. Justification leads to celebration. He's been justified. So this is the first response. When we look at this passage, it's really a call to celebrate. I mean, for those of us in Christ who have been born again through the Spirit of God, by His grace, our names have been called. We celebrate. We rejoice. I mean, Christmas time is particularly a sweet time to celebrate because it's the time that He has come to bring deliverance. But I think this passage isn't just a call to celebrate. I think it's a, it's a call to caution for those who are religious. It, it, it's a call to caution that those of us who have been in church a long time and you're beginning to think through. I'm not looking to cause a lack of assurance in your salvation. I'm not looking to cause you to feel uncertain about whether God loves you. All I'm asking you to do is to examine your souls. You know, do you realize you once were lost and now you've been found? I, I'm not, many people will say to me, you know what, I know my faults. I'm not perfect. I don't have it all together. I always want to say, we all know that. But, but that is not equivalent to I once was lost and now I'm found. I was blind, but now I get to see. It, that's different than I know my faults. I don't do everything perfectly. There's a big difference between those two. There's a call to caution here. But there's also a call to the lost. If you're here and you do feel like, I feel like, I feel like Zacchaeus. I feel like the prostitute. I feel like, you know, the person that has just fallen so far over and over and over again. All my thousands of attempts. I, I don't know how, how he could love me. This story is for you. To remind you that he seeks you. Listening to the call of God. If your heart is drawn to that, then you are being hunted. You thought you might be searching, but he's been searching for you. And this is what leads him to repentance and faith. This is how we enter the sonship or the daughtership of Abraham, through faith. This is a classic Christmas passage here, a great story for us that, that speaks to all of us at these various levels. So let's ask God to give us grace to really understand this, that it will lead to a celebration of profound dimension in knowing that once we were lost, now we're found. Once we were blind, but now we're see. It's an invitation to you who have not moved in faith to Christ. It's an invitation to come to the one he's seeking and searching, the lost. That's why he came, and that's why he was born. And I would ask you to respond to that by faith in him who will save. Let's pray together.
Or in fact, let's take a moment and just consider this and ponder this, and then I'll pray for us in a moment.